This is The Rounds Table. All right, welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. Well, as you know, 2022 is almost behind us. So what better way to end the year than a top five articles published in 2022? Justin, you all set on your end? I am. All right, so let's chat about what we felt were the top five potentially practice-changing articles published this year. Uh, first up, uh, published in Nature Medicine, the SGLT2 inhibitor empagliflozin in patients hospitalized for acute heart failure, a multinational randomized trial. That sounds like a very important paper. Why was it in your top five? I love SGLT2s. You know that. The listeners know that. But there is this belief that SGLT2s should not be started in hospital. I don't agree with that. And the other part is, this is heart failure. So I just thought it was so many reasons why it made the top five for me. And what was the research question? In patients hospitalized with acute heart failure, does empagliflozin improve clinical outcomes? And what sort of population and intervention were they investigating? Yeah, so we can use the PICO framework. Um, So population, patients hospitalized with acute decompensated heart failure, regardless of their ejection fraction, regardless of whether or not they had diabetes. The intervention was empagliflozin, 10 milligrams once a day. The comparator was placebo. And maybe the hardest part was understanding the outcome. It was called clinical benefit, and it was a composite of all-cause death, number of heart failure events, and a five-point change in the cardiomyopathy symptom score, and that was assessed at 90 days after randomization. And this sort of clinical benefit, what was their primary outcome in that regard? So overall, they had 530 randomized patients who received empagliflozin versus placebo, and they saw overall a higher rate of better clinical outcomes, that composite of all-cause death, number of heart failure events, etc., for those who received empagliflozin, and a lower rate of serious adverse events for those who received empagliflozin. It sounds like these drugs are amazing. Uh, were there any limitations? They sure are, Justin. It's a bit of a weird primary outcome. I'll be the first to admit that. That's an important limitation, especially from an interpretability standpoint. But aside from that, you know, it's an impressive double-blind placebo-controlled trial. So there's not a lot you can criticize here. And why was it practice-changing? Or is it practice-changing? Yeah, I think it was practice-changing for me. I got a lot less weird looks from colleagues and pharmacists when when I now start SGLT2s uh, in hospital, especially for patients who are coming in with acute and decompensated heart failure. All right, Justin, one down, four to go. What trial do you have up for us next? So the next study is looking at terzepatide once weekly for the treatment of obesity. Awesome. Why was it in your top five? So I guess similar to your passion for SGLT2 inhibitors, I share a passion for GLP-1 agonists. Um, and I think terzepatide is really interesting in terms of, I guess, how many different indications it's uh, growing to have. And I also think that obesity is a really complex thing that we encounter and that individuals within our society live with. And it's exciting to see research looking at more than lifestyle modifications in us caring for people with obesity. I totally agree. What was the research question here? They were looking at what the safety and efficacy of terzepatide was in adults with obesity that did not have diabetes. Okay, and walk me through the PICO uh, framework for the study. So the population they were investigating were patients with a BMI greater than 30 or a BMI greater than 27 with any obesity-related complication, excluding diabetes. 
The intervention was once weekly terzepatide at either 5, 10, or 15 milligrams, and this was compared to a placebo. And the outcome was essentially a co-primary endpoint where they were looking at the percentage change in weight from baseline and an overall weight reduction of 5% or more. And ultimately, they were looking at this over a 72-week period. Awesome. And what did they find in this study? So what they found was that patients that received terzepatide had significantly more weight loss relative to those receiving placebo. So a 15 to 20% change relative to a 3% change. And even more than that, the percentage of participants who had reduction of 5% or more in of weight loss was 85 to 91% in those receiving terzepatide relative to those that received placebo. So they only experienced about 35% weight reduction of more than 5%. They also noticed that a change in baseline from initial introduction to the study to week 72, individuals that received terzepatide had um, reduction in waist circumference, systolic blood pressure, fasting insulin, as well as lipid levels, and overall improved physical function. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty amazing. The fact that they observed a 15 to 20% reduction in their weight if they got this drug is incredible. But what are the limitations here? So overall, I think that the study has very few limitations. I think that the biggest caveat is that the majority of participants in the study were white, and so the results may not be as generalizable to the general population. And another component of this was that most patients that were enrolled had relatively normal cardiac and metabolic parameters, so things like blood pressure or LDL, which may have attenuated sort of the true degree of improvement in these markers that was assessed or witnessed. Gotcha. And why was this practice changing? I think that this was practice changing for me, at least, because it's sort of medication that we can use or pharmacotherapy that we can use to help individuals attain weight loss that have obesity when non-pharmacologic strategies fail or just sort of supplement our overall sort of holistic care of patients with obesity and prevent longer term complications. Right. And I guess terzepatide isn't available in Canada yet. Is that right? I know I haven't used it yet. It is not available in Canada. So that's also a very large caveat, too. Gotcha. Soon to be practice changing. All right, cool. Well, study number three, also published in New England Journal of Medicine, entitled Empagliflozin in Patients with Chronic Kidney Disease or Empa Kidney. And why was it in your top five? Again, my love of SGLT2s and also it's chronic kidney disease, such an important disease. We see so many patients affected by it on the internal medicine ward. And it would be awesome if we had another drug that could reduce the rate of decline in a patient's GFR, glomerular filtration rate. I agree. And what was the research question? For patients with chronic kidney disease, can empagliflozin reduce the risk of disease progression? And what was their PICO? So the population, um, it was uh, adults with a GFR of 20 to 45 or adults with a GFR of 45 to 90 with a urine ACR greater than 200, again, regardless of whether or not they had diabetes. The intervention, good old-fashioned empagliflozin, 10 milligrams once a day. The comparator was placebo. The outcome, again, a bit of a mouthful, but it was a composite of progression of their kidney disease defined as end-stage kidney disease, a sustained decrease in EGFR less than 10, a sustained decrease in EGFR from greater than 40% from baseline or death from renal causes or death from cardiovascular causes assessed at two years. It's quite a large composite outcome. And uh, what did they find in the results? So among uh, just over 6,000 patients included in the trial, the primary outcome occurred in 13% of patients who got empagliflozin compared to 17% of patients who got placebo. That's an absolute risk reduction of 4%, which is really, really impressive, also known as a 30% relative risk reduction. And then some of their secondary outcomes were pretty striking. For example, 
the rate of all-cause hospitalizations was lower among patients randomized to empagliflozin. I see. And were there any limitations in the study? You've alluded to this already. Composite outcomes aren't ideal because the obvious question is, all right, well, what's driving this difference? Um, but in fairness to the researchers of this study, this is a pretty standard composite, especially in the world of chronic kidney disease. I feel like I'm also indoctrinated into the love of SGLT2s. And why was it practice changing? Now we have another treatment for adults who have chronic kidney disease, and her name is empagliflozin. So that's why it was practice changing for me. Fantastic. All right, back to you, Justin. What's next? So I'm going to be talking about aggressive or moderate fluid resuscitation in acute pancreatitis or the waterfall trial again. Awesome. Why was it in your top five? I think that in general, there really isn't much evidence to support the management that we use in the treatment of pancreatitis. And I think that it really sort of tackles a long sort of standing paradigm that we're taught about fluids, fluids, fluids for patients that have pancreatitis. I agree. And what was the research question here? They were looking at what the safety and efficacy of aggressive fluid resuscitation as compared with moderate fluid resuscitation in a diverse sample of patients with acute pancreatitis across a range of severity of disease. All right. And walk me through the PICO framework. So they're looking at patients that had acute pancreatitis and their intervention was goal-directed resuscitation with Bruner's lactate. So the patients that were in the intervention arm of this trial received moderate resuscitation. And so these individuals um, either got a small bolus of 10 cc's per kilogram if they had hypovolemia or no bolus at all if they were euvolemic. And this was followed by 1.5 cc's per kilogram of Bruner's lactate in patients per hour um, afterward. And this was compared to sort of the current goal-directed standard of aggressive resuscitation with Runger's lactate, where individuals got a bolus of 20 cc's per kilogram, followed by 3 cc's per kilogram per hour afterward. And ultimately, the outcome that they were looking at was developing moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis. And they were looking at a safety outcome of fluid overload after randomization during hospitalization. And this was overall looked at over a 72-hour period. And what did they find? Ultimately, they found that there was no significant difference between the development of moderately severe or severe acute pancreatitis between individuals that received a more moderate fluid resuscitation strategy versus an aggressive strategy. And ultimately, aggressive resuscitation was associated with a significantly higher rate of fluid overload and adverse safety outcomes relative to the moderate arm. What were the limitations for this study? So ultimately, uh, this trial was terminated at the first interim analysis because of the concern of how adverse that outcome was in terms of uh, fluid overload with patients receiving aggressive resuscitation. And so it was underpowered to evaluate efficacy outcomes definitively. But ultimately, I think that with that limitation in mind, it's still a fantastic study. I agree. And why was it practice changing for you? Uh, so I think that overall, the tide has been turning against the use of aggressive resuscitation and acute pancreatitis. And I really think that this high quality study can sort of support that practice change. Yep, I'm on board. Okay, but last up and maybe not least, I don't know, listeners can decide. This was a randomized trial published in Circulation. It was entitled Early versus Delayed Non-Vitamin K Antagonist Oral Anticoagulant Therapy After Acute Ischemic Stroke and Atrial Fibrillation, the Timing Trial. And why was it in your top five? I love studies that answer pragmatic questions. And a pragmatic question that I have when I'm caring for adults with um, AFib who've, who've had an acute stroke, which has brought them into hospitalization is, when do I start their DOAC? Do I start it right away? Do I wait 10 days? We really don't have great evidence from randomized trials to answer this very important and pragmatic question. 
And what was the research question that they were looking at in particular? Is early initiation of a DOAC non-inferior to later initiation for adults with AFib and stroke? That's a great question. And what was the PICO? The population were adults 18 years of age and older with ischemic stroke uh, and hospitalized in the past 72 hours. The intervention was an early DOAC, so within five days. The comparator was a delayed DOAC, that is five to 10 days later. Uh, the primary outcome was a composite of recurrent ischemic stroke, symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage, or all-cause mortality at 90 days. And what was their overall result or primary outcome? So they included almost 900 patients who were randomized, as noted, to early or delayed. And by early, on average, it was by day three. And in the delayed group, it was by day five. The primary composite outcome occurred in 7% of patients assigned to early initiation and in 9% of patients assigned to delayed NOAC initiation. So this can be considered non-inferior, aka it is non-inferior to start a DOAC sooner rather than later. Wow, that's amazing. And were there any limitations? It was a relatively small trial. It was an unblinded trial. So I think that's always important. Of course, when a trial isn't blinded, there can be all sorts of ascertainment bias that can creep in during a follow-up as well as time-varying confounding. But let's be honest, this answers a very pragmatic question and it's the best data we have to date. And why was it practice changing for you? You know, before this study, all we had were observational data but now we have a great clinical trial to answer this question. So I am certainly sold, but I don't know if you are, Justin. I mean, I think I could be. It looks promising. All right. <laughs> Agreed. All right. Well, we're almost done. And before we end, a quick reminder, this episode has been brought to you by Sault Ste. Marie Physician Recruitment and Retention Program, aka SUMED. We've never had a sponsor before. What does this mean? I know we're, we're so much more legit now. So as you know, Justin, I've been locuming in the Sioux for the past seven years. I absolutely love it up there. And it turns out they're hiring. They're looking for physicians in family medicine, internal medicine, surgery, psychiatry, just to name a few. Are there any chances for learners to go up? Absolutely. You know, I've created an elective for internal medicine residents, including senior residents such as yourself, uh, Justin, as well as family medicine residents. And you can be from really any university in Ontario, heck, Canada for that matter. So if people want to learn more about the job opportunities in the Sioux uh, or about coming up for an elective, you know, send me a message on Twitter or email me at mike.fralick at utoronto.ca. All right, Justin, that's it for today, I guess, uh, and a happy new year to you when the time comes. Thank you to you as well, and thank you to sort of Sault Ste. Marie for sponsoring this. Agreed. Awesome. Take care, listeners, and happy new year. The Roundstable is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable. Thanks to our audio editors, Emilio Garcia-Flores and Arjun Sharma. Also thanks to Amol Verma, founder of The Roundstable, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, Editor-in-Chief at Healthy Debate for all the support.